Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Hey, good afternoon or good morning or whatever it is, whatever time you, whatever time it is where you are. Um, hello, everybody. Uh, we are doing something a little different today. So welcome to the award-winning recovery podcast, Get in the Herd. Uh, my name is Nathan Mitchell, and we are recording this so that we can broadcast it later and then see where we go from there. And I'm so, so honored today. We have an author in the studio. And I love that we get to have so many authors lately because we get these amazing, amazing stories. We have Brian Cuban with us today. Um, and Brian, his first book, Shattered Image, um, is a My Triumph Over Body Dysmorphic Disorder. Uh, talks about his, you know, his issues with uh, sobriety, his issues with this issue, this particular body issue. And we're going to talk about that. But also, The Addicted Lawyer is the next book, and that's uh, The Tales of Bar, Booze, Blow, and Redemption. There's some really funny, relatable stuff in here for me, Brian. I tell you, I started reading this, and I thought, wow, that's kind of my life right there a little bit. Brian's here because he just released a new book, his first foray into the fiction world, and I think this is a really fun one, too. It's a thriller. Which, as Brian was just telling me, debuted at number one uh, for for the debut thriller paper paperback. Yeah, it was uh, two weeks ago. It released. It was the uh, number one selling debut thriller paperback. So I was. It's kind of cool seeing your name up there. Along, I was the guy on top of me was Stephen King. Oh wow! And then and below me was John Grisham. Now, of course, they're on there every week selling thousands of copies. But uh, it's still kind of surre- a surreal moment in time. That's fantastic. And the book is called The Ambulance Chaser. Brian, would you want to give us a little synopsis of the book? Sure. The The Ambulance Chaser is about a Pittsburgh personal injury lawyer, Jason Feldman, who finds himself accused of the murder of a high school classmate 30 years prior after her remains are discovered. He is char- charged with her murder and arrested. He flees, uh, becoming a fugitive to find the one person who can prove his innocence and, and uh, save his abducted son. Well, I, welcome to the show because there are so many layers to that, and I love yeah. that. And and what I like is that you you put this in a place that you know familiar. You're, you're very familiar with Pittsburgh. So, um, Brian, I know that that welcome again to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself and and why we've at well why you're connected to the McShin Foundation? Sure. Well, uh, for, first and foremost, I'm a person in long term recovery. I, w- I am rounding the bend to 15 years wow. in long-term recovery from drug and alcohol addiction, uh, you know, alcohol and substance use disorder. Uh, my drugs of choice were cocaine and uh, particularly whiskey on the on the alcohol side. A little Jack Daniels there, and uh, uh, very relatable for me. Yeah, and uh, I also uh, have had a lot of underlying mental health struggles. Uh, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, the first after a near suicide attempt in 2005. Uh, I've been arrested, three failed marriages, all revolving around drugs and alcohol. So it's been it's been a bumpy roller coaster, as is the case with you know most who go through these types of things. Born and raised in Pittsburgh, PA, I'm a boomer. Uh, people, I'm the middle of three boys. People may know my older brother Mark from the Mavs and Shark Tank. I have a younger brother Jeff, but we all live in Dallas now, uh, actually walking distance to each other. 
and uh, went to Penn State undergrad, Pitt Law School, and uh, and you know, and it, it's been a it's been quite the journey. That's fantastic. So, coming up on fifteen years. Wow. Yeah. When did you start telling your story? You know, when did when did writing become um, a tool for you, or has it become a tool for you in your recovery? Oh, it's absolutely become a tool. It, it, it became a tool not so much around drugs and alcohol, but I'm also in recovery from bulimia and eating disorder. Yes, guys do get eating disorders. About one in three uh, with eating disorders are male. And I, I started my uh, writing journey really writing about my battle with uh, bulimia and my recovery from bulimia to uh, as kind of a uh, cathartic journey. And that transitioned into writing about my re uh, recovery from addiction and that transitioned into books and that transitioned into a novel. Uh, I'm a lawyer by trade, but I haven't practiced in a decade. Uh, I've, my passion really is writing, not, it was never practicing law. Wow. Well, so you say that, so you say that you your passion was writing first. You know, did you write um, did you write fiction in your briefs before you got into recovery? No, I'm kidding about that. But you know, you, you know, there was a lot of fic when I was when I wasn't in recovery. There was a lot of fiction in many of these things like that. <laughs> right? That's what we do. We lie. We we do. We do, man. Fifteen years though. You know, tell tell me, like, what what happened? You know, what was it like? What happened? And what is it like now in recovery? Well, to really understand how I got to that point, you have to. Listen, well, you have to understand the entire package, right? Because we're, we're all more than the moment, uh, the, the alcohol moment or the cocaine moment. There are snapshots, uh, an accumulation of life snapshots that come together to create that. Mm. And uh, so let's take the hot tub time machine back to Pittsburgh, PA. Great uh, baby boomer, the 70s. I'm the middle of three boys. Uh, growing up at a time when cell phones were two cups attached to a string. <laughs> and that uh, social networking was playing dodgeball or kickball on the basketball court. And uh, I have my older brother, Mark, uh, he was the firstborn. And he was, as you might expect, outgoing, selling this door to door, selling that door to door. I remember when there was a printer strike and our newspaper shut down. This mm -hmm. is when people actually read newspapers <laughs> when they were, we didn't have the Internet. And uh, he and his buddies, barely old enough to drive, drove from Pittsburgh to Cleveland about 200 miles, bought their newspapers, drove them back to Pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner for twice what they paid for them. So wow. you kind of knew what he was going to be even back then. <laughs> uh, my younger brother, Jeff, is a nationally ranked wrestler, a jock, the beer parties, the proms, the girls, the dates, all of those things. All of the things that I, he was all the things that I kind of associated with peer acceptance and, you know, and, and having a good time. And uh, unfortunately, I was classic middle, middle child syndrome. I was shy, I was withdrawn, and I internalized anything negative said about me and wore it as a, who I was as kind of a skin-tight suit. And I was a heavy kid as well. And unfortunately, I also had a very difficult relationship with my mom. And I want to tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear to everyone watching this or listening that I do not blame my mother for the things that I went through or any of my parents or family. Uh, parents do not cause addiction. Parents do not cause eating disorders. There is a difference between cause and correlation. Uh, correlation cause, correlation means it'll happen to some kids. It won't happen to others, right? Going through the exact same thing. So that's an important distinction that if there's no parent blaming here. There was a lot of fat shaming in my household. I used to come home from school uh, and go into the kitchen and pull out a, a can of Chef Boyardee beefaroni or ravioli or SpaghettiOs 
from the cabinet, pull out the old style can opener. This is before electric ones. You know, eh, 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 eh. And this is before we didn't have a microwave. I'd stick the spoon in and start eating it. My mom would walk into the kitchen, see me and say, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're going to be a fat pit. Now, my, these were the things my mom's grandmother said to my, my mom's mother said to my mom and things my grandmother, great grandmother probably said to my grandmother. Uh, my mom had a very mentally and verbally abusive relationship with her mother. It was it was very difficult. Her mother was a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic and uh, had spent time in a in a facility and uh, their relationship was just awful. And so not under and it flowed downhill and not understanding these things. She was repeating cycles. I grew depressed and I began to eat more Chef Boyardee and more Chef Boyardee and I became a bigger Brian and a bigger Brian. And as so often happens when kids change for what other kids perceive in the negative at school, the bullying intensified. The fat teasing, the fat taunts, Brian, you're a fat pig. Well, you must talk to my mom. You know, Brian, you need to go to Sears and get a bra back when Sears was a thing for your man boobs. Wow. And I put my, my wall of protection around this was kind of to be the class clown, the self-deprecating clown. Yeah, I know I'm headed to Sears right now. I'm going to get a bigger belt. Ha ha. And I laughed with them. So they wouldn't know how much it hurt. The, these taunts and this bullying hurt. And you have to remember, this was at a time when going viral meant 15 kids in a lunchroom knew about something. This wasn't how it is today when uh, going viral in the anonymity is much more insidious and it's very damaging. But it still hurt nonetheless, right? You, you are a product of your times and, and, and the context of your times. So it, it hurt. And the bullying, the bullying uh, came to a climax one day, what I call the day of the gold pants. It was my freshman year in high school. This was 1976, I believe. Uh, this was during the time, have you seen Saturday Night Fever? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was the disco era. Uh-huh. And this was the time Saturday Night Fever was just coming out. Disco was huge. My older brother, Mark, was very into the disco scene believe it or not. And uh, he gave me a pair of shiny gold bottom, bell bottom disco pants that he had uh, decided to get a pair of new ones, I guess. And he gave me those, literally these satin, shiny bell bottom disco pants. And uh, now the pants fit Mark okay, but I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle. My butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out, stuffing myself in there. But I didn't care. I wore, I loved my brother and I wore him to school. And the kids taunted me and made fun of me. And uh, I'm walking home from school one day with this, this group of kids and who are, in my mind, the popular kids. But they're also kind of bullies. But I thought it was one of those things where you hang around the bullies who are popular, going to the football games, going to the after school parties, all the things you want to be invited to. It would be like a fraternity hazing. Sooner or later, they'd say, OK, you're one of us now, kid, and you can hang with us. But that's not how bullying works. And we're walking home from school about a mile from school and I'm wearing these pants and they're laughing at me and they're making fun of me. And one of the kid pulls at him and it tears. The pants tear, little tear. Then another kid, oh, he pulls. They tear some more. And then it was like rabid dogs on a piece of meat. They physically assaulted me. They tore the pants off me, ripped them into shreds and threw them out in the busy street down in my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt, my uh, three ring, my three color ring tube socks and my kids' tennis shoes. And uh, they walked down the sidewalk like they had done the funniest thing ever, high-fiving. And I walked out in the street, picked up the shreds, covered up my tidy whities waddled home along the busy street. People gawked. No one stopped. I got home, and I there was no one home. It was funeral quiet. 
I walked down, I went to, to the, I walked down to the basement and we had these wooden stairs going down to the basement with, with every stair, they creaked. And with every creak, I felt like it reverberated throughout the world. Everyone knew my shame and knew what had happened. My parents, my brothers, the bullies, you know, all the girls at the school, everyone could hear my shame. I got to the bottom into the basement and uh, didn't even turn on the light. I found the wastebasket in the dark and I shoved the shreds to the bottom of the wastebasket, put all the trash back over the top, hoping that would hide my shame and that I would just forget about it. But that's not how trauma works. Trauma remembers, trauma threads. And that event was so traumatic to me that I could take you to Pittsburgh, PA and show you exactly where it happened. And it was right around then. And uh, and it wasn't just that traumatic moment. It was, I mean, there were all these different things coming together, right? The perfect storm. My personality, the my relationship with my mom, the bullying, the, the, the physical assault came together so that I remember around then kind of for the first time seeing in my reflection this unlovable monster who would, that's just this giant fat pig who would never be loved by his mother, who loved him dearly, was just struggling with her own mental health issues, loved me dearly, who would never have a girlfriend, get married, never be included in anything. And I took that image with me through, throughout my life. That image, you know, packed up in my suitcase onto Penn State University. And as you might have imagine, I was so happy to get out of Pittsburgh, get out of high school, get away from the bullies and go on to my freshman year at Penn State. And I remember at Penn State, it was freshman year. My, uh, I was in a dorm. My father was helping me unpack. It was this beautiful fall day, cool, crisp. And I'm standing in the dorm looking out this rectangular window, about like the window we have here in our uh, Facebook, in our live. And, uh, and I make eye contact with this curly brown haired girl. And she looks at me and I start sweating. She's unpacking with her friends and her parents. And I imagine my entire life with this girl in 15 seconds. We're going to date. We're going to get married. We're going to have two and one half children. And my life is going to be, things are going to be different now. It wasn't a smile. It was a smirk. She looks at her friend, puts her hand over her mouth, looks at me. Ugly. Ugly. Now, I'm not the first kid to have nasty things said to him, right? Another kid may have said ugly back. Another kid may have flipped her off. And oh, There are a whole ranges of responses that can happen that happen based on our personality, our genetics, our social environmental variables. And But I was somebody who already felt ugly. And it was right around then. And again, I don't blame this girl. This is just one of a million variables in life. Uh, it was right around then that I... I felt totally out of control in my life. I remember feeling totally out of control. I would always be ugly. How can I not be ugly? How can I not be ugly? Well, one way is to look like the bullies, to look like, you know, all the kids, you know, who might, this girl might be interested in, to become thin. And I began to restrict my food intake and restrict and restrict and quickly transitioned into binging and purging. And before I knew it, in 1979, before anyone was talking about eating disorders for men or women, before the wonderful singer Karen Carpenter would pass away in 1983, four years later, from complications relating to anorexia and bring eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight, I was a guy with an eating disorder. I didn't know what that was. I, didn't, I had never heard bulimia before. No one... 
but here, but it was instinctive, almost instinctive. And uh, every time I binged and purged, I got this feeling of peace that came into my stomach that the next day the girls would like me. The next day I would be accepted. The next day I would love myself. The next day, the next day, the next day. But then that feeling only lasted about 15 seconds. I can only compare it to maybe a cocaine high. The feeling went away and in swept the shame. The shame of engaging in an act that I did not understand. But I, I didn't know what an eating disorder was, but I knew guys didn't stick their fingers down their throat. That's just not what guys do. But I had to have that feeling of peace again and again. The life of a bulimic. And then I quickly transitioned into uh, drinking heavily uh, before I knew it because it, the, the binging and purging wasn't making me feel any better on the long term. And so I instinctively began wanting to not feel at all. And we have state stores in Pennsylvania. I was going to the state store. I was buying bottles of tequila and I was chugging these bottles of tequila in the alleys outside of, uh, now I'm in, in State College, PA, the alleys outside of the bar so I could get drunk to go up into the bar already drunk, right? In the hopes I might be this brine that everyone loves instead of being this, you know, slobbering fool, which I was, or so drunk I just sat in a, a zombie stupor, and, you know, at, at a table alone. and. Uh, this is how I lived four years at Penn State, binging and purging, drinking. Uh, I, was an, I was an alcoholic, you know, alcohol use disorder in, at college. And this was a time when uh, there, there was really no talk about re recovery or uh, residential treatment. And there was no, people weren't sharing stories. You, were, you either met someone in 12-step, you know, who, who reached out to you. Or you were, or or you were in an in a hospital ward, or you weren't in recovery, and so uh, it was it was uh, just a day to day thing. And uh, I had also begun running excessive distances and developed exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. And so it was this vicious cycle. And the closest I ever really came to any epiphany on recovery at Penn State was walking into a hamburger joint, drunk, of course. And I came across, across a rack of pamphlets that the 12-step groups put out. And uh, I don't know if they still do that, the 20 questions. Uh, and, uh, some, some, I've seen them around here. But. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But they were big back then. They were really big on college campuses, these 20 questions that were uh, geared towards college students. Do you black out? Do you miss class? And, you're, and I'm checking off, yes, and, you know, maybe you have a drinking problem. Call us. And, you know, call, call us, find a meeting. And uh, I'm checking off yes to all these questions, and I just crumple it up. My tryout for the Maverick, two points. I thought was, I'm a college student. We all drink like this. Right? I don't have a problem. And that was as close as I ever came. But uh, I was able to do okay at Penn State because I had the ability to pull it together before an exam, study all night, get back the answers. I was a criminal justice major. I wanted to be a police officer. That would have worked out well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the, the baby laxative for the blow, believe me. <laughs> But uh, so, so uh, I did was able to get through Penn State, and I don't say this as a badge of honor, as an alcoholic, and I don't say this as a badge of honor. It just was what it was, right? I didn't know I was that. I was just surviving and trying to get through, uh, you know, just living, living in the moment. And so I'm sitting in the placement office, the jobs office at Penn State of my major, and I'm thripping through cop, cop jobs in these little pamphlets. This is before computers. Uh, before the internet. So uh, there were two guys sitting next to me and they both from Pittsburgh. I knew them and they're talking about taking the law school admission test, the LSATs. And I start listening to them 
and the bells start going off in my head, Nathan. Not the bells of I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know any lawyer. I had no concept of what it meant to be a lawyer. No lawyers in my family. Not the bells of I want to emulate Atticus Finch or be the next Clarence Darrow. The bells of law school is three years. I can stay in school three more years and I can drink. I can binge and purge and I can run my 10 to 20 miles a day, which would, this was all just an incredible strain on my body. There were times I couldn't get out of bed. And, uh, and I can engage in the exact same behaviors that were my line of security blanket uh, that got, you know, of survival through four years of Penn State. And I don't have to show myself to anyone for three more years. And for those reasons, it made perfect sense for me to go to law school. Because at that time, I wasn't thinking three years out. I was, I, I was barely seeing the tip of my nose, right? Day by day, drink by drink, finger by finger down my throat. That was it. That is all I saw, survival. And days just went from one day to the next. And uh, I had no friends, none at all. It was a very lonely, isolated existence that many of us can identify with uh, alcohol, right? A very lonely, isolated existence. And uh, so I took the LSATs and I got into pit law. And I walked through the pit doors of pit law as an alcoholic, as a bulimic, struggling with, uh, you know, excessive exercise, not quite the recipe for law review. And, uh, and I didn't, I was a less than mediocre student. I, I, I was able to get through the three years. I graduated by the skin of my teeth. It was so close that I had reoccurring dreams. I still have them nowadays. Nowadays about going to uh, graduation and the dean of the law school going, psych, and, took, and pulled the diploma back. You didn't graduate. I wake up sweating and grabbing for it. And the irony of that is I was so ashamed of myself. Uh, I didn't even, uh, I was so apathetic. I didn't even go to graduation. Oh, wow. but the, but the cool part about that is it came full circle uh, the year before last where I keynoted the 2020 uh, Pitt Law graduation as an example of recovery. And, wow. uh, you know, I wore the cap and gown for the first time in my life. So that was very neat. But uh, re repeating cycles, I left Pitt Law as an alcoholic. And I decided to move to Dallas, Texas, where both my brothers already lived. And that was Labor Day, 1986. I packed up with my duffel bag and 100 bucks my dad had given me or 50 bucks. My brother Mark met me at the Greyhound bus station and I moved in with him. And it was uh, like throwing gasoline on a fire because this is the mid 80s. They're dating. They didn't do drugs, but they're out going to the bars and dating. I fit right in. Right. So my drinking escalated. Uh, and then in the summer of 1987, at this at this nightclub in the bar in the bathroom, uh, wearing the suit I'd owned since high school graduation, hadn't even passed the bar yet, pretending I was this lawyer upstairs, lying, lying, lying. I discovered the one thing that for the first time in my young 26 years, that finally allowed me to look in the mirror and love myself. What do you think that was? Oh, I I, I think I know. It was cocaine. Oh, yeah. A wow. buddy of mine who, uh, you know, was into cocaine said, you want to do a line? And I was scared. And but uh, I, you know, said, sure. Went down to the bathroom, did that line, looked in the mirror. And for the first time in my life, I love Brian. For the first time in my life, those bullies like Brian. For the first time in my life, that curly brown haired girl like Brian. For the first I was going to walk upstairs to that bar and everyone in that bar 
likes Brian. But just but the most important thing was Brian likes Brian. And so I walked up and I'm like, hey, yeah. And then, but then the high wore off, right? <laughs> Brian hates Brian again. Yeah. Where's the dealer? Gave him a hundred bucks, bought that gram, back down to the base, back down to the, you know, and then did you know I'm back down, back down, back down. And uh alcohol and cocaine took over my life. I failed the Texas bar exam three times uh, as a result of being more into drugs and alcohol. Uh, and then uh, I, I lost my career as a lawyer. And in 2005, I became so despondent and there were failed marriages. In 2005, I became so despondent that uh, I would uh, never love Brian or and uh, I lost hope. I lost hope and I decided to end my life by suicide. And it was close, Nathan. It was close. I sent a friend a disturbing email, and he contacted my brothers, Mark and Jeff. They showed up at my house. I was in bed, and there was Xanax strewn out on the counter, and there was cocaine. And my life up at that point was literally uh, cocaine at night, Xanax to the day, through the day, right? Xanax, cocaine, Xanax. And it was, I mean, I don't even, the days just blended together. And not a way you can practice law. I mean, I was doing cocaine in the state courthouse and the federal courthouse bathroom, uh, going to going to hearings under the influence, going to hearings hungover, and uh, it, they they cleaned up the scene. They took me on my first of two trips down to a psychiatric facility, kicking and screaming. They're trying to save my life, and I, all I can think of is get out of my life. Let me go back home to the people who truly care about me, at least until the cocaine is gone. Right, the people I party with. And they weren't having any of that. And they were trying to put a psychiatric hold on me. And I knew what to say. In Texas, you have to be a danger to yourself or to others, much to their chagrin. And this is a time to acknowledge my privilege. I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge the enormous privilege I've had in both addiction and recovery, uh, skin color privilege, financial privilege, all kinds of levels of privilege that the vast majority of people do not enjoy. So it would be I, I have to acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean I took advantage of it, right? Uh, and I didn't. I didn't. I had these brothers who were willing to do anything for me, and I just wanted them to get out of my life. And so they took me back home. They took my car keys and what they did what I call the Cuban rehab. They took my car keys and said, stay in your house for two weeks. Everything's going to be okay. And they're trying to figure it out. They don't know. All I, all I could think of is no problem. My drug dealer delivers. <laughs> yeah, right, of course. Right? <laughs> high class. I was high class. High class. And uh, so then I was right back out at it uh, after they went. Or the, my party did come to me. And uh, and then I, I was right back out at it. The only thing I did was distance from my family. And that transitioned to uh, I met a girl in 2006. We started dating. She didn't know anything about my issues. And at this point, I had no legal career. Uh, again, this is privilege. My brother Mark was taking care of me because I had no way of earning a living. They didn't. He didn't want to see me living under a bridge or uh, actually complete the uh, complete a suicide. And so, uh, yeah, that's privilege. Is it enabling? Well, maybe, but it's enabling that got me here today. And uh, moving on to 15 years of recovery. So uh, I don't, you know, if that is what it is, right? And so I met a girl named Amanda out during one of my week-long birthday celebrations when the cocaine started and when the cocaine ended in 2006. 
She didn't know anything about my problems. Uh, I had a PhD in lying in addition to my JD. And we moved in together. And I remember when we moved in together, Nathan, She, uh, a buddy of mine who I partied with said, how is that going to work? You do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. Ooh. And I said to him, I'm going to stop now. This is going to cause me to stop. So I'm starting to think about it, right? The stages have changed. I'm starting to think about it. And we, Easter, we moved in together, and, but I didn't stop. Easter, I just didn't do it around her. Easter weekend, 2007, she goes away for the weekend to visit her parents. I go out. The next thing I know, it's two days later. I'm in bed. There's cocaine everywhere. There's the Xanax. I, I thought I would get up in time to clean up when I went out before she got home. I had had a two-day drug and alcohol-induced blackout. She's looking down at me. It's Sunday evening. Trying, she's trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. Friday to Sunday was just gone. I'm looking around trying to get my bearings, then trying to think of what lie I can tell to explain this law and order episode orgy of evidence that I just might not be the person I represented myself to be, right? This respectable lawyer. All I could think of was kind of a metaphorical run home to mama. And I asked her to take me back to the psychiatric hospital I'd been to in 2005. What? You've been to a psychiatric hospital? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> right now, <laughs> I just need this drive to think of a better lie. So we get down to the psychiatric hospital. I'm standing in intake for the sec I'm standing in the parking lot waiting for intake for the second time in my life, you know, less than two years later. She's crying. And three things occurred to me. One, there wouldn't be a third trip back. I'd be dead. Two, she's going to leave. I'd leave, right? We haven't been dating barely a year. She stood by me, Nathan. She stood by me while I, we, we dated for a decade while I built recovery. I found recovery. We built the broken trust, repaired the broken trust. And we have now been married going on uh, over five and over five years. And we'll have 16 years together next month. So not all relationships will survive it, but Ours was able to, one, because she's a saint, and two, because I had to do the work for me, right? I couldn't do it for her. I couldn't do it for the pets that I've lost, for my father that I've, that died, because people die, pets die, trauma happens, and recovery has to be able to withstand that, you know, and because uh, they can be all triggers for relapse. And so I didn't know that in a logical way, but I knew that instinctively as I built my recovery. And uh, so, we, yeah, so that worked. And I thought about my father standing in that parking lot. I thought about my dad, who was at that time alive, a veteran of the uh, the greatest generation, yeah. a veteran of the Pacific, fought in Okinawa. He was a CB, uh, fought in Korea. Uh, he fixed cars with it. He was the middle of three boys like me, fixed cars. He had a trim shop in Pittsburgh with his older brother. And what a trim shop is, is where you uh, reupholster convertible seats, put on convertible tops, reupholster seats, reupholster couches, very middle-class working guy. And he would say to us growing up, my two brothers and I, whatever you do, wherever you go in life, pick up that phone and tell your brother you love him. Make your, sure your brother's okay. This was the relationship he had with his brothers. And he was passing on to us this gift of family, which is another privilege I have, which I feel very fortunate to have. Uh, the gift of the strong family core. And if you wanna know how that gift stuck, all these decades later, 1,200 miles from Pittsburgh, where we grew up, and now we're in Dallas. Mark, Jeff, and I live walking distance to each other. And until my father passed away, he lived across the street from me, literally. Wow. And I wasn't ready to lose my family. Not that they didn't love me, but we were distancing, right? I wasn't seeing my nieces and nephews. I wasn't seeing my brothers, my father, 
my mother. So I was in my isolated little cocaine and alcohol bubble. And I wasn't ready to lose my family. And they were frustrated, right? They were they were frustrated, like all families get when, when they, they love someone and it's just not going the way they want it to go. And uh, I was finally ready. I would, why then and not in 2005 when I had a 45 automatic on my nightstand when my brothers walked in the house? I don't know. If we configured that out, we'd win the Nobel Prize for addiction. <laughs> we sure would, Brian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, uh, I, Brian, I, I want to take a pause right now because I think this is a good natural spot for we'll we'll, we'll put in a, a a break in the in the middle of this. But I do want to come back from this little break and then start talking about the family and rebuilding those relationships because that 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 powerful you talk about that family um, that privilege of having family and that's. A lot of your story, I'm, I, I read a little bit from the books, and I, I'm relating to everything that you're saying. And so, and I think a lot of people are going to relate to these things, but those, those feelings. So I just want to take a pause right here, and we'll come back in just a few moments. Okay, everybody, welcome back. Um, that was fun. <laughs> um, thank you again. Our guest is Brian Cuban. He's here talking about his experience, strength, and hope uh, with addiction. He has a few books out. Uh, most recently, his first foray into the nonfiction world. I'm sorry, the fiction world. The fiction world. The fiction world, right. This is cool. Um, and I love thrillers and murder mysteries, so this, this is really fun read here. Um, it's a it's a it's a book called The Ambulance Chaser. It's a thriller about a, a person who uh, hasn't yet found recovery, who is uh, asked to, um, well, not asked to. He's 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 made to account for his whereabouts and what was going on with a murder a few uh, thirty what thirty years back. Thirty years back, yes. Yeah. So so um, he's accused of murder. Has to uh, figure that out. And secrets, then right? It's, it's about secrets, things we understand in uh, in addiction, secrets. This, there's a, this, this, it's funny because I've read pieces from the three books and, and there's a piece that sticks out from The Addicted Lawyer that comes right to my mind. It's in the beginning of the book, Brian. And so we were talking about family before the break. And the thing that strikes me here is those moments where you sold, well, traded your tickets. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Brian, do you want to tell us about that? Absolutely, absolutely. So the the Dallas Mavericks were going to the NBA championship for the very first time in 2006. And that's the team your brother owns, Mark. Yes, yeah. So my brother owns a team, and we had had some success, but this was our first trip to the championship. And as you might imagine, I was going to get some pretty good seats for those games. I also had the opportunity to get a couple of tickets for friends. I called up my brother. He said, sure, come on over and get the tickets. And do you think I gave them to my friends? Nope. You're probably thinking I put them on eBay and sold them for some astronomical amount. I didn't do that either because that would have been disrespectful to Mark and the team. What I did was take those two tickets and trade them to my cocaine dealer for $1,000 in cocaine, right? Selling them on eBay was disrespectful, but trading them to my cocaine dealer, perfectly acceptable. You know, and Brian, I, when I hear you say that, the first thought that comes to my mind is you couldn't have gotten more than $1,000 worth. That's the first thing that comes to my addict brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I, I may have underpriced myself, but... A little bit. Well, so my dealer shows up in my house. Like I said, I was high clad. This is the guy that delivers. And uh, he gives me the two tickets. I give him the tickets. He gives me this Ziploc baggie of, of cocaine. I go running to my up to my home office, uh, the long wooden oak desk. 
I dump it out on the desk. It really, it's piled in this mountain, like this Scarface mountain. I just wanted to go right and rub my nose in it. And uh, so, of course, I bought it for a reason. I take the credit card. I roll up the dollar bill. And our cocaine users kind of an ironic bunch, especially in pandemic times. You put on the hand sanitizer. You go to the bathroom. Of course, you wash your hands. But we'll stick a dollar bill up our nose that's been used by God knows who and had God knows what on it. See, but I always, I always tried to use $100 bills because I figured they were more high class. And yeah, like, yeah. That was my yeah. But I've read, I've read all money has some form of cocaine. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you know, go figure, right? Wash your hands, but just stick that dollar bill right up your nose. But at that, we were really at a point in 2006 now where, you know, there's a saying cocaine's fun till it's not. It's not. It wasn't. And at that point, I was just chasing uh, highs that were never going to come again. It was always uh, just, it was be really becoming just chasing the dragon type miserable. And, uh, but it was never, Brian, you have a problem. It was, maybe I need to get a new dealer. Maybe I need to switch out the cocaine for the Jack, you know, the uh, Jack Daniels for the Grey Goose. And there was a lot of paranoia at this point. Do I hear the cops outside? I go peeking out the window thinking the cops are going to arrest me. And so I take the cocaine, I put it back in the Ziploc baggie, I hide it. I drive to a, it was either a Lowe's or a Home Depot, uh, where I buy electrical faceplate outlets, a drill and a saw. I drive back to my house. I go upstairs to the drywall, to all the closets in the bedrooms with the saw and the drill. And I create these fake electrical outlets. I take the cocaine, I put it into smaller Ziploc baggies. I slap it behind all these fake electrical outlets behind the drywall. And I drill it back, thinking I'm the smartest lawyer ever. Like the DEA, the cops, and the drug dogs have never thought of that before. So I, I say I line out some more, and I, and I snored, and it was just, again, just pain and shame. And uh, the paranoia again. About an hour later, I go back to those same electrical outlets. I take it out. I go to my master bathroom and flush it down the toilet. Now it's $900 worth of cocaine. I know. The next morning comes. I wake up. Wait a minute. Did I? Come on, Brian. You didn't. I flush my stash down the toilet. There's another game tonight. I call up my brother. I get two more tickets. I go over and get them. I call up my cocaine dealer. He shows up at my house. He said, dude, you did all that last night? Which actually, I knew people who did a lot more than I did. But I said, yes, give me, I did. Give me more. I didn't want to tell him I flushed it down the toilet like an idiot. And so he said, okay. That rinse, wash, repeat. Back up to the, back up to my desk. Dump it out one more time, line it out, pain and shame and chasing the high, chasing the high. And then the paranoia again, back to the electrical outlets, bzz, 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 bzz. hide it all again. An hour or so later, take it back out again, go back to that same master bathroom the second night in a row, drop to my knees like I'd done so many times praying or hoping, you know, praying to the porcelain god hoping for someone or something to take away this pain and shame and a lifetime of trauma threading through my body and flush it down the toilet again. They say when Dallas flushes, it runs downhill to Houston. So I think some people in Houston may have had a little hop in their steps those two nights. The quote unquote insanity of addiction, right? Doing the same thing the same way over and over and expecting a different result. But as we know, it's not. It's a biological brain-based process with many genetic, social, environmental factors and behavioral. What I love about your writing and your storytelling is 
I feel the, the little details, you know, there's a detail you didn't mention when you just told the story that's mentioned in the book that really resonated with me was the fine sieve that you ran it through. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. The, you know, what was funny. I, I, uh, anytime I had one of my mini, you know, your, your mini, okay, I'll never do this again. I would throw away the sieve. So every, so I, I, I must've bought, uh, we had, they're called Tom thumbs and Dallas, whatever the supermarkets. I must've bought a hundred, uh, sieves from Tom thumb because I, part of the whole guild process was throwing away the sieve. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that. And, and as a baker, I, I bake a lot, you know, I've used those in the past for actual powdered sugar. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Um, but that that's the way you write and the way you tell stories, you know, really relates. You know, I obviously not every piece of your story is my story, but the feelings, you know, and and what you talk about and how you tell that. And so, you know, pivoting from where we were and the things that we did with the family, you know, the story that we tell that, that I would love to hear now is the, is the resilience and, and yeah. how you made those relationships back, you know, with the with your siblings, Jeff and Mark, who live walking distance from you, how you made, you know, made it better. with well, your dad. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny. We have to when I uh, on on April 8th, I uh, or that I walked into my I was seeing a psychiatrist as well. Uh, but uh, at that I'd been seeing a psychiatrist for a couple of years and I've been lying to him, lying to him, lying to him. Well, why would you lie to your uh, therapist? Well, shame knows no hourly rate. Mm-hmm. I was ashamed. Yeah. So uh, I finally started getting honest with him and he gave me the choice of uh, treatment or 12 step. And that, and I, I refuse to go to treatment. I'm too important. I, I'm a busy lawyer. I have no cases, but I'm a busy <laughs> lawyer. Right. And, it, and he, he brought up 12. Would you go to 12 step? And I, I, I and this is true. I, I kind of exploded. I said, I'm not going there. They smoke. I see them smoking out there. Secondhand smoke will kill you, doctor. Right. <laughs> There's always a reason. And, and I truly believed in what I was saying. And he said, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And well, I wasn't going to treatment. So I chose 12 step. And when I sat down in the rooms of 12 step for the first time, April 8th, uh, I really wasn't thinking alcoholic or anything like that. When I was crying and I smelled and I wanted to show my brothers and my family and now my wife that I was willing to do something, right? Because I know they were at wit's edge. So this was kind of the beginning of that. And whatever the motivation was, it is long, that, that's fine. I, wanted to, I, I chose 12 steps so I could call them in part and say, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying. So I sat down and I was crying and I smelled. And... And sitting down, in, in addition to that, what I wanted more than anything of sitting in that room would allow me for the first time in my life to wake up the next morning, walk to the mirror, birthday suit naked, and without the aid of drugs or alcohol, look at my reflection and love myself. Yeah. I would sit in that room. That's what I wanted more than anything else in uh, my entire life, right, was to love myself. That is what caused the problems, this 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 quest this dysfunctional quest to love myself. Uh, and so that's, uh, and, if, and I continued to sit and I continued in counseling. And a week after I began therapy, a week after I walked in the rooms of 12 step, I walked, I walked in, I went over to my dad's house. He knew nothing about any of this, any of this. And I knocked on the door. We, he, come on in, Brian. I sat on the couch and I'm crying and I'm crying and I finally finally start telling him about all these things. All he said was his own. He started crying with me and he said, Brian, move in with me. We'll get through this together. Wow. 
And he was the, I was that freshman in high school, that 15 year old little boy wanting to be held with my, by my father. And finally was that little boy that I was too scared to tell him what was going on. And I would have got the same response back then. And so that was kind of the beginning of the family. And as it was sitting in the rooms, you listen to other stories about broken families and, you know, and families and, and, and listening to the stories and trying to get some perspective on, uh, you know, the family dynamics of, of other people. Uh, I, this is where I came to realize that the relationship was going to be repaired by me doing it for me, right? Because I couldn't make them believe me. I couldn't make them say, yeah, okay, you're doing great, Brian. Now everything's great. Come on over and see your nieces and nephews and things like that. It had to be for me. And and it, it was a process, right? It was a process for me. And it was a slow process of re- not, not repairing love because they love me dearly, right? We live walking distance to each other. I love the repairing trust. Yeah. Did you have a moment? I, I, I had a moment. Well, I have a moment. <laughs> I had a, a period, I should say, a period of time you know, in early recovery, the first, you know, after the brain fog sort of lifted where, all right, cool. I need to tell everybody and I need to, I need to fix everything right now, right away, because I do everything. I do everything alcoholically. Still, mm-hmm. I work on, on not going to hyper this or hyper that. Um, and that, that took that. I'm very fortunate. I think in my, in, for my story, I was in jail for those first two yeah. months of my early recovery. And so it prevented me from having a well, lot of disappointment. I was in, you know what? I was in a position where I really, my friends, I had uh, the the people I was hanging out with were all people I did drugs with, right? Yeah. Uh, I had a couple good friends who I never even saw anymore or talked to anymore. So I'm I'm kind of a as as even as a sober person, I'm kind of an isolator, anyways. I'm not, you know, as a sober person, I'm not anyone who needs to be social or anything like that. And that's who I just who I am. When it's uh, comes to that kind of thing, I'm a fairly shy person. So. It wasn't necessarily uh, uh, I, 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 my family saw it as a good thing and I saw it as a good thing to just boom. Uh, as we all do, I cut off the relationships. I changed my phone number. I did all the ritual things, right? Not that that uh, really solves anything because I knew my dealer's number off by heart. Sure. Uh, but uh, I, I did a lot of time in the rooms that first 90 days, six months because the pool of loneliness, although I lived for my dad for, with my dad for a little bit, the pool of loneliness was strong, right? You know, I can go back, I can call them, I can call those guys, I can get to the bars and then I won't be lonely anymore. Uh, so that was tough. That part was tough. And, but I was fortunate to have uh, a good, good, strong home group uh, where I went to and uh, became close with a lot of those people. And uh, when, when I knew the pool was going to be tough and that's where I went and that's where I stayed strong. How but about- I wasn't really, I other than, other than my immediate family, I don't think I recall trying to show anyone that I'm sober now because the only people I cared about were my immediate family. Yeah. It's and my, amazing. And now my wife, you know. It's amazing how um, all those little things I thought I had to fix right off the bat suddenly, well, not suddenly, over time become, oh, wait, why am I even thinking about that? Yeah, and I don't even want to face those things. Yeah. You know, all the all the damage, people ask me, what do I do? I regret the path? No, but I do regret the collateral damage of the people I hurt. And and there was a time I, I wasn't ready to face any of that for, you know, uh, for a long time. And then as I found recovery, there was a lot of bridge repairing. And uh, for the people I could make amends to, I did. 
Yeah. For me, it's so important to work with my sponsor, you know, and, you know, I work a 12 step program too. And to have that uh, trusting relationship with somebody who's been in my shoes, um, you know, and, and to be able to call on that person in those moments when, when I, I want to just, you know, go back to some old. Yeah. Days. And my sponsor, I, I've had two sponsors, but my last one was uh, my last one's my current one. I've had, you know, for uh, 14 of my almost 15 years of recovery. And he, we, we, uh, he, he's been, he's a good dude. And we, uh, he doesn't, he never tried to force anything on me. He never tried to force his view of what the big book says on me or how I should live my life. He listened and he still listens and says, how's that working for you? Right. And, <laughs> That's uh, what mine does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we talk about it. So, uh, he, he, yeah, so it wasn't, I was fortunate to have somebody who fit in with who I was. I would love to to talk about recovery from the body dysmorphic disorder and how that how that works for you and 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 what is that process? What is that transition? That uh, recovery from body dysmorphic disorder, which is a not an eating disorder, it affects one and two percent of the population, men and women equally. And what body dysmorphic disorder is is when you take a non-existent or small defect in your body, imagined defect in your body, and exaggerate it in your reflection. Uh, to the point where it affects your ability to function, quote unquote, normally in life. For me, it was my stomach. Anytime I looked in the mirror, I saw this just massive, massive stomach. It's not a visual delusion. So I want to be clear. It's not, you are not visually deluded. It is part of the, it is on the obsessive compulsive spectrum. It is this overwhelming feeling that just builds up and builds up that it's there. It's there. It's there until it causes you to do a line or do this or do that. Uh, body dysmorphic disorder has a very high correlation to suicide, to addiction, uh, to steroid abuse. I have abused anabolic steroids, uh, became addicted to anabolic steroids. So it's it's a, and it has a very, you know, it's a very it's a serious disorder that is very difficult to treat. And uh, there was a lot of there has been a lot of therapy related to that, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, many different kinds of therapy, acceptance and commitment to get comfortable with who I am. That. I am enough. That's a saying we have an eating disorder recovery. Whatever I see in the mirror, whether I'm bald, whether I'm heavy, whether, and I'm not, this isn't on because I'm bald. It's on because my hair is a mess. <laughs> but I am. I'm losing my hair. There, see? there we go. But uh, it's been, and, and, and my greatest recovery struggle today is my uh, relationship with food and exercise. Uh, so all related to that. Yeah. And uh, a lot of underlying therapy, right? Because, uh, 12 steps about abstinence. Uh, I had to repair the little boy. Yeah. Is there a 12 step program for uh, body dysmorphic disorder? No, there is not. No, no, no. There is for eating disorders. I believe there's a 12 step overeaters for and eating anonymous. disorders, overeaters anonymous, and just uh, things like that. Uh, overeating isn't, I don't know if that would be classified as a diagnosed eating disorder, but there are eating disorders in that realm. But uh, unless it was binge eating disorder, that would be classified. But, uh, uh, I'm not aware of anything like that for body dysmorphic disorder. Very difficult to treat, very difficult to find therapists for that actually understand the disorder. Yeah. That's where I get a lot of people reaching out to me because it is, uh, you know, it, it is a difficult disorder to come to terms with. Well, as I understand, it's hard enough for women to talk about it and for a man to speak about that. You know, that, that uh, takes, I mean, it takes courage to share our stories, period. And that, you know, I, I, get, I get emails from a lot of guys, especially younger men who are struggling with it and feel lost and hopeless. And they don't. I mean, I know people don't leave the house. They, they literally don't leave the house for months on time because they think this little blemish on the, their skin is covering their face or, you know, they just think they have this. They are disfigured. It's a very serious disorder. Yeah. 
That's powerful stuff. Brian, your books, man. I love your writing. I'm very eager to see what other thrillers uh, you come up with. Um, Working on the sequel. Are you? Very good, very good. I, I, I Maybe we'll see the sun jump into things uh, as he gets older. Um, see what happens with that. But, um, Brian, before we go out, man, it's it's Christmas Eve is tomorrow. And uh, I know that you, you have a strong ties with your family. Um, your mom is still in Pittsburgh. Is that correct? Yes, yes. My mom lives in Pittsburgh in the house we grew up in. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That's yeah. it's wild. Um, my, my mom's about an hour and a half from me. Um, and I, the, the beautiful thing about recovery for me, me is that I now have these relationships with my family. Mm -hmm. I have a brother in recovery. He's up in, uh, he's, he lives across the lake from my mom. Um, I have a sister in recovery who moved from Denton, Texas, uh, last, uh the early, earlier this year. Um, now lives down the street from me here in Northern, uh, what the heck am I in Richmond? Um, I, I'm from Northern Virginia, DC. Yeah. Area, so so well, I, I, I love, I love Richmond. The one only time I was there, uh, John, uh, John, John <laughs> McQuinn, uh, drove me around and it was a beautiful city. Man, you got to come back. Uh, for, first of all, if you, if you haven't, have you met Carol, his wife? Oh, of course. Yes. Carol McQueen, yeah. Of course. Yeah. She, she's, I mean, I love John and don't get me wrong. He's my boss yeah. and I absolutely adore John. Carol's, Carol's the, well, they're both the brains of the operation. Wonderful people, wonderful Carol's people. Wonderful, yeah, please give them my best. I will. I absolutely will. And you know, I I won't speak for them, but I I, I can almost guarantee that if you ever come back to Richmond, I'm sure they would put you up at their place. You can certainly stay with me. <laughs> but you know, I live a I live a, a nonprofit uh, working uh, with. Uh, listen, man, I love where I live and I love what I do. But and you're welcome to come and stay with me anytime. But you know, you should come to visit. Our, our participants would love to see you. I know you've been here before. They would love to hear from you. Um, they're going to love this. I, I think these are some really amazing stories, and and I hope to hear more from you in the future. I hope we get to stay friends. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Anything absolutely. you want to share uh, to say goodbye to everybody? No, just you know, I, there's uh, the only requirement for recovery. It's funny. I, uh, I, 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 when I speak, I do a lot of speaking. I say, what's the only requirement for recovery? And you get, you have to want it. Yeah, it's nine different things. You have to want it. You have to. Now, the only prerequisite to recovery is be alive, be above ground. If you are above ground, it's possible. You know, take that first scary step. Find somebody, you know, you're project, you may be projecting out that no one cares about you. People do. People yeah. do. And uh, what is it that is keeping you? What is it that kept me from reaching out? Because I projected out every, every possible terrible response in the world when, to my father, right, who would, have, who would have hugged me and wanted to help me. Whatever, whoever that person is, right? Who, because a lot of people don't have that uh, family unit, but to whoever that person is, find that person. Yeah, and then it comes right down to being able to look in the mirror and say, "I love that Nathan. I love that right. Ryan." That's right. And, uh, it's possible. It's possible. It's obviously a process, and recovery is rarely a straight line, but uh, it's it's uh, it can be done. One day at a time. That's right. That's awesome. Our guest today, Brian Cuban. This has been a fun conversation. I really appreciate you sharing and all the little details. It's a beautiful story about redemption and recovery um, and, and everything about that. Good luck with your writing and more. You know, uh, The Ambulance Chaser, which just came out two weeks ago, debuted as number one. On, well, no, debuted. What, what? It, debuted it, it debuted as the book scan number one, uh, number one selling uh, thriller paperback. I wrote it down, Brian, and I can't read my own handwriting. So. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was, uh, that was quite a uh, sight. Uh, like I said, I'm going to have that framed. That's awesome. I, I'm really excited for you. This is a, a great read, um, and we'll we'll talk to you more in the future. Happy Happy Holidays, Merry Well, Happy Holidays. I, I, yep, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. We'll see you soon, Brian. Thank you. That sounds great. It was an honor to be on. You all have a 
very happy holiday and a wonderful 2022. Thank you very much. Take care, everybody. the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShen. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.